Okay. So that actually had nothing to do with the message. I just love watching skateboarding clips and (laughs) kidding. Uh, So there's one thing about learning to skateboard and learning to do it well and being able to do it for a long time is that you have to learn how to fall. And as you saw right there, that guy was a professional skateboarder, paid to do that for a living. And look at all the times he fell. You have to learn how to fall correctly to avoid injury. And then if you are injured, you have to learn how to recuperate well if you want to continue doing it. And you know, That really is very, very much like the Christian life. In this world, every single one of us is going to fall. None of us is going to escape sin, even after coming to the Lord. And I think there is kind of a misconception in the church of you come to Jesus and all your problems are going to be gone. He's going to make you new. He's going to make you whole. And yes, that's true that he makes you new. He makes you whole. But we still have this body of flesh that we have to deal with. And if we don't learn how to do that and how to fall properly, then we are going to set ourselves up for ruin. In Proverbs 24:16, it says, "Though a righteous person falls seven times, he will get up, but the wicked will stumble into ruin." And in the video, the skateboarder, he fell seven times and then nailed it. And it's really just such a great illustration of the Christian life, of being able to fall and being able to rise again and continue in the path that God has set for us. And we're going to look at two different examples of failure in the Old Testament, David and Saul. Both of them sinned greatly, but Saul was rejected by the Lord, and David was named a man after God's own heart. In fact, he was given the honor of being able to carry on the line of the Messiah, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And that was Jesus Christ. And, and, and why? What was the difference between these two men? You know, you, you look at the lives of, of both of them, and, and in most everyone's eyes, David committed far greater sins than Saul did. So what was the difference between the two? Why was David honor? And Saul rejected. We're going to look into that. Let's go ahead and pray together. Father God, I just thank you for this opportunity that we have to worship you. Father God, I just thank you that we are in, a, in an area, God, where we are free to proclaim your praises. Lord, where we can sing together. And uh, Lord, we can study the word together. I thank you for the true blessing that that really is. Lord, help us to understand that and appreciate it. Lord, we invite your Holy Spirit here today. Lord, that you would minister to each one of us. Lord, teach us. God, build us up, tear us down, convict us. Whatever needs to happen in each one of our hearts and lives, God, we just pray that you would do that appropriate work. 
We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we're going we're gonna to cover the sin and the response of both Saul and David. So we'll start out with the sins of Saul. And this is not anywhere near an exhaustive list of their sins. It's, we're just going to highlight a couple. So the first one is that Saul was panicking. He was freaking out because the Philistine armies were about to attack him. And he was pretty greatly outnumbered. It says that they were going to attack him with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops as, number, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. So he's looking out at this vast army, and he's really starting to freak out. And in 1 Samuel 13, 6 and 7, it says, The men of Israel saw that they were in trouble because the troops were in a difficult situation. They hid in caves, in thickets, among rocks, and in holes and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul, however, was at Gilgal, and all his troops were gripped with fear. So not only is, is Saul starting to panic, but his troops have absolutely just abandoned camp. They just started running and hiding in caves and in bushes and, and just cowering for fear. And I'm sure that doesn't do much for the heart of the king when he sees all of his men running away and he's standing there going, oh, great. And, uh, and so, even despite his fear, he was still called to obey the word of the Lord. Now, what was the word of the Lord? He was to wait for Samuel, the prophet, to come and offer the sacrifice. And he knew this. This was already by the word of the Lord that, hey, wait until Samuel comes. And then he will offer the sacrifice and then you can go into battle. But rather than obeying God's word, he took matters into his own hands and he offered the sacrifice himself. Now, there's many of us probably who would, who would think, okay, so what's the big deal? He offered a sacrifice to the Lord. Doesn't God command us to offer sacrifices? Well, yes, but he was offering a sacrifice as a priest. And God forbid any king from acting as a priest. Well, why? What is the big deal? The big deal is that he was messing with the picture of Jesus Christ. He is our only priest and king. In the human realm, they were always meant to be kept separate because Jesus is the only one who can rule us with government and yet be that atoning sacrifice in our place at the same time. So Saul didn't understand the significance of why he was supposed to obey, but nonetheless, God, it was important to him and said, you need to obey this. And Saul cast it aside. Now, from there in 1 Samuel 13, 13 and 14, it says, Sam, Samuel said to Saul, you have been foolish. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. It was at this time that the Lord would have permanently established your reign over Israel. But now your reign will not endure. 
The Lord has found a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people, because you have not done what the Lord commanded. Now, let's not misunderstand this. Our God is not the kind of God who will take somebody that doesn't understand what they're doing and punish them to the fullest extent of the law. I believe that Saul understood the command. I believe that he understood the significance. And to cover his own skin, decided to cast off God's command and decided to to go for self-preservation instead. I don't think this was some just innocent, oh man, I didn't even understand why I was supposed to obey that. Wow, now I understand, but now it's too late. No, I don't believe it was like that at all. Next, we see Saul facing the Amalekites. And this is, uh, if you turn uh, just a couple pages to the right in uh, 1 Samuel 15, he's facing the Amalekites now. And once again, he is going to disregard the Lord's order to him. Saul was given quite an honor. He was given an opportunity to fulfill a 300-year-old prophecy given to Moses and to Joshua. Because what had happened is, if you remember the Israelites as they were passing through the wilderness, that this was the time where, where God had, had told Moses to, to strike the rock and it will pour out water because the people were dying of thirst. And so, uh, so he did that. And then Amalek comes, comes in and, and they're setting up to attack them when they're vulnerable. And this was the story about... Um, Moses's arms being held up as the Amalekites were battling against them. And God swore an oath at that time to Moses that he would completely, completely blot out the name of Amalek because of what they had done against the Israelites. As they were passing through and not being any threat to them, they came and saw an opportunity and, and just tried to take advantage of them. And, and, and killed the Israelites. And God made sure, he said, that is going to be punished. And so it was a 300-year-old prophecy. And this was given to Saul. That's a pretty great honor from God. And yet in, in 1 Samuel 15, 8 and 9, it says that he captured King Agag of Amalek, but he completely destroyed all the rest of the people with a sword. Saul and the troops spared Agag and the best of the sheep, goats, cattle, and choice animals, as well as the young rams and the best of everything else. They were not willing to destroy them, but they did destroy all the worthless and unwanted things. Oh, it's so great of Saul to do that, you know. And so what they did... You know, God said, I, wa- I want you wiping out everything. You know, sheep and cattle, oxen, everything. That, it all needs to be gone. And, uh, and instead of doing that, he decided, man, that's a lot of good stuff. And, and back then, that was money in the bank right there. I mean, that was, that was your status and your wealth was shown in how, how much cattle you had. And, and so... Here it is that Saul just looks at that as valuables that, well, 
Why would I destroy that? I'm just going to keep that. He disregarded the word of the Lord, but it says that all the worthless things he destroyed. So he pretended like he was doing the work of the Lord, but it was all a show. It was all a total sham. And so Samuel came to confront him after the Lord spoke to him. So now this is the response of Saul to the sins that he had committed. Samuel comes to confront him. And God had said to Samuel, I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned away from following me and has not carried out my instructions. God spoke that to Samuel. So Samuel, as he's going to speak to Saul, God had already told him what happened. And so here's Saul's reaction to Samuel's confrontation. He first tries to hide his sin. As Samuel is approaching him, he runs out and greets him and says, I have carried out the Lord's instructions. So he's trying to hide his sin and pretend like he finished the job, like he did everything that he was supposed to do. So that's first. He tried to hide his sin. Number two, he tried to blame his own men. He tried to blame his troops. What a great leader. He said the troops brought them from the Amalekites and spared the best sheep, goats, and cattle. He says, oh, my men did it. It wasn't me. It says, then he kept, then he kept all these good things in order to offer a sacrifice to the Lord your God. So that always makes everything better, to put a holy spin on the things that you're doing that are sinful. It's like, well, God, I only robbed that bank so that I could give you a bigger tithe. I mean, really, that was the heart behind doing that. I just wanted to bless you, God, so I robbed that bank, and it was all for you, God. You know, this, God doesn't fall for that. He's not stupid. And so, uh, you know, from there, it says in 1 Samuel 15, 16 through 19, it's right as Saul is speaking. Samuel interrupts him and says, stop. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. He said, although you once considered yourself unimportant, haven't you become the leader of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you as king over Israel and then sent you on a mission and said, go and completely destroy the sinful Amalekites. Fight against them until you have annihilated them. So why didn't you obey the Lord? Why did you rush on the plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? So once again, here, Saul, he's got an opportunity. He has a chance to own up to his sin, to admit what he's done, to seek the mercy of the Lord and the forgiveness of God. And he doesn't. What does he do? He once again tries to state that he didn't do anything wrong. It's not my fault. It's the troops. I wanted to honor God. He basically restates everything that he already said, digging himself deeper into his own hole. And it's like the criminal who says, who are you going to believe, me or that lion camera? Like, come on. You, you got to trust me here. And that's really what Saul's doing is, is Samuel confronts him and tells him, here's what happened. God saw you. God knew. God spoke to me. And he just 
continues to try and, and boost up his own cred here, and, and it doesn't work. And after he sees that this line of reasoning isn't going anywhere, in 1 Samuel 15, 24, Saul says, I have sinned. I have transgressed the Lord's command and your words because I was afraid of the people. I obeyed them. Now, therefore, please forgive my sin and return with me so I can worship the Lord. You know, Saul, he feigned repentance, but there was none. He was still blaming other people. He said, yeah, I sinned, but it was because of the people, because I was afraid of them. You know, he's the leader of the people. And, and, and at other times in, in his work as king, he was never afraid of the people. So this, once again, is absolute garbage. And then he says, I want you to return with me so that I can worship the Lord. He wanted his public image unaltered, even though he had completely rebelled against the Lord. And in 1 Samuel 15, 27 and 28, it says, When Samuel turned to go, Saul grabbed the corner of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingship of Israel from you away, uh, uh, away from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. That's got a sting. So that was the consequence that God gave to Saul. God told him that he would take the kingdom from him and give it to someone who deserved it more. And I love the, this old quote that, that has just gone over in my mind a hundred times over. You can choose your sin, but you cannot choose your consequence. God gave to Saul the consequence of actions that he chose. And so how did he react to this? Now that the consequence is being handed out, did he accept it from the Lord? Was he humble even now at this point that he realized that there was no, there was no smoke screening this, there was no trying to put a holy spin on it, there, there was no getting out of it? How did he react to the consequence once that was fully ordered from God? Did he accept it? Absolutely not. He fought against the word of the Lord. God knew that he had rejected him from being king and had anointed David to be the next king, and yet he tried for years to take David out. He tried to kill him. First, he tried to bring him into his house, and then there were several times where he was throwing spears at him, and then he went on an all-out attack after David ran away and was looking for him, hunting him down, trying to kill him. He was trying to erase the consequence that God gave him instead of being humble and accepting it. Now, we're going to look at David. So let's turn to 2 Samuel. Uh, 2 Samuel 11. And we're going to go through quite a bit of scripture with these two uh, 1 Samuel. In uh, 2 Samuel 11, 2. It says, one evening, David got up from his bed and strolled around the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. So David sent someone to inquire about her. And he said, isn't this Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam and wife of Uriah the Hittite? 
Uh, David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to him, he slept with her. Now she had been purifying, just been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Afterwards, she returned home. The woman conceived and sent word to inform David, I am pregnant. David sent orders to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab and the troops were doing and how the war was going. You can see where David's getting into this. And it says, then he said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the palace with all his master servants. He did not go down to his house. When it was reported to David, Uriah didn't go home. David questioned Uriah, haven't you just come from a journey? Why didn't you go home? Uriah answered David, the ark, Israel, and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my master Joab and his soldiers are camping in the open field. How can I enter my house and eat and drink and sleep with my wife? As surely as you live in your life, I will not do this. Stay here today also, David said to Uriah, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. Then David invited Uriah to eat and drink with him, and David got him drunk. When he went out in the evening to lie down on his cot with the master's servants, but he did not go home. Then the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In the letter he wrote, put Uriah in the front of the fiercest fighting and then withdraw from him so that he is struck down and dies. When Joab was besieging the city, he put Uriah in the place where he knew the best enemy soldiers were. Then the men of the city came out and attacked Joab and some of the men from David's soldiers fell in battle in Uriah the Hittite also. And then in 26 and 27, it says, When Uriah's wife heard that her husband Uriah had died, she mourned for him. When the time of mourning ended, David brought her to his house. She became his wife and bore a son. However, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. So we see there the sin. That, I mean, we've got adultery. We've got cover-up. We've got murder. And Uriah was not the only one who was the victim in this. Uh, He was not the only one who died. It says some of the men from David's soldiers fell in battle. We're not told how many, but there were other warriors who also died because of this sin of David's that he was trying to cover up. And so, again, in many, many people's minds, you know, David did kill someone. Saul was in trouble for not killing someone. Like, isn't this much, much worse what David did? And then we see how, how the sin is revealed. In, in 2 Samuel 12, verse 1, it says, So the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he arrived, he said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very large flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one small ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised her, and she grew up with him and with his children. From his meager food she would eat, from his cup she would drink, and in his arms she would sleep. She was like a daughter to him. Now a rich man, or now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man could not bring himself to take one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for his guest. 
David was infuriated with the man and said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. Because he has done this thing and shown no pity, he must pay four lambs for that lamb. Nathan replied, you are the man. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I rescued you from Saul. I gave your master's house to you, and I gave your master's wives into your arms, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that were not enough, I would have given you even more. Why then have you despised the Lord's command by doing what I consider evil? And so right there, David's just caught red-handed. He's exposed. Now, at this point, though, he's king. As far as he knows, Nathan is the only one that knows about this. If his heart were like Saul's, he could just kill Nathan, be over with it, continue to hide his sin, and just go on living his life. But again, we see a difference in the life of David and Saul. In 2 Samuel 12, 13, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. David gave no excuses. He did not shift the blame. And we also see that God had handed out consequences, that the baby that was born to him in Bathsheba, it died because of his sin. And the Lord told him that the baby was going to die. Now, He prayed and pleaded and fasted for the life of that child. And it's it's not that he was fighting against the Lord. He knew that there was nothing that he could do. And so he begged the Lord, please have mercy, have mercy. But then when when he realized that, that God's mind was made up and that he could not change the situation, he received and accepted the consequences as the justice of God. Now, There's more to this than just saying or not saying the right words. Because even Saul had said, oh, I've sinned against the Lord. But there was a great difference in the heart of both of them. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 51. And this is called David's Lament, or a prayer for restoration. In one of these uh, verses, we sang the song, Search My Heart. And uh, it says, be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion. Blot out my rebellion, completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. Against you and you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity from the inner self, and you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face from my sins and blot out all my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me 
and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways, and sinners will return to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want a sacrifice, or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. In your good pleasure, cause Zion to prosper, build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So there's, there's David's heart concerning his sin. He, he was not making excuses for it. He just opened himself wide open to God and said, it is only through your purification that I can even live. He says, completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. David knew that there was nothing that he could personally do to remove his sin. The forgiveness and cleansing had to come completely from the Lord. And later in this psalm, he said, you do not want a sacrifice or else I would give it. And this is in the Old Testament, you know, where, when things were accomplished by the law. And we see that even back then, no, 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 no. It was never just about the fulfillment of the law. It was never just about offering the right sacrifices because there were many, many, many men and women through the years who had offered the right sacrifices and yet went away not being justified because they did not bring it in spirit and in truth. It was about the heart. David understand you know, I could bring a thousand bulls, 10,000 sheep. I could bring all of this stuff to God and it wouldn't make a di- bit of difference. It, God was concerned about the heart. And in Joel chapter two, the prophet Joel is begging the people to return to the Lord. So he tells them, so tear your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord. Through the scriptures, God talks about how he's, he's so tired of the outward symbols of repentance and how people would tear their clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and, and do all of this public, repent, public signs of repentance. And yet inwardly, there was no change of heart. Jesus condemned the Pharisees time and time again, and yet you see to repentant sinners, there was never any condemnation. It says that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. David said, I acknowledge my transgressions. He owned his sin. He didn't blame anyone else. It was all him. And he says, against you and you only have I sinned. Now, this is an interesting idea. Because David's sin was definitely against other people. He sinned against Bathsheba, which most likely he used his influence and power to take an unwilling woman. He murdered someone. He stole that man's wife before he murdered him. And he was guilty for the death of other soldiers. David sinned against other people. And yet he says, against you and you only I have sinned, O Lord. Yet the key sin 
It was not David against Uriah, or David against Bathsheba, or David against his troops. David was sinning against God because God first and foremost wrote his law on David's heart and said, do not do these things to your fellow man. And he ignored that and did it anyway. His sin was against God. God had given him the path of righteousness and he ignored it and he strayed from it. So what was the difference then between David and Saul? Why was David honored and Saul rejected? Saul wanted to be seen as right before the Lord in front of the people. David wanted to be right before the Lord in the inner room, in his prayer closet. He didn't care about what he was in front of the people. He wanted to be right with the Lord. David humbled himself and was willing to accept whatever punishment the Lord saw fit to give him. And with Saul, there was no brokenness. It was all about image and holding on to his power and position. He kicked and screamed and tried to do everything that he could to fight against the consequences that the Lord handed out to him. So for each one of us, what is the path of restoration for each one of us when we fall? For the believer, it starts with confession. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the word confess means to say the same thing as God about our sins. It's just as important to look at what confession is not as well as it is to look at what confession is. Confession is not making excuses for our sins. You know, so many, with so many people, confession is just, okay, you rattle off the bad things that you did, but it's all about what you're saying. It's not about your heart. While true confession is agreeing with God in the inner man about the wickedness of our sin. Confession is not making excuses for our sin, like blaming others, blaming our environment. Well, you know, it all comes from my father, and that's why. No, no. No pass in the buck here. We, we own our sin. Uh, confessing is not minimizing the nature of the sin. Well, it's not that bad. I mean, look at what my neighbor's doing. It's so much worse than, no. We agree with God about the wickedness of our sin. And confession is not saying with our prayers that we know it was wrong, but fully committing and planning within our hearts to continue in it. That's not confession. Revelation 2.5 gives us the path to restored fellowship with God. It says, remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the first works that you first did. So three steps right there. Remember what it was that brought us to God. His mercy, his love, his forgiveness. Repent. This means to turn away from our sin, to change our mind. Do a 180 and walk around with it. Don't keep it around just because you might need it someday, you know, just to fully get rid of it. And that was the whole picture of the Amalekites in the Old Testament is that that is how we're to deal with sin. We don't keep the king around. That would be like, you know, the, the allied powers wiping out Germany and then just keeping Hitler around just because. No, 
That's, that's not what we were called to do. And so repent means to turn away. And then three, repeat the first works. Remember where you were and continue doing what you started doing in the beginning. And then for the, belie- the unbeliever, the first step is just to acknowledge that you have sinned and that you're in need of a savior. And if you haven't acknowledged your sinfulness, there's no real need for a savior. You know what I mean? And so uh, Peter, Peter put it this way in Acts 2.38. Repent and be baptized, each one of you, in the name of Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's so easy. God has made it so simple for each one of us to turn to him. He has made it so simple that even a five-year-old could get this. And yet somebody who has studied their entire lives and and can be considered a, a certified genius can have the hardest time with something like this. It is so simple. God just says, repent and be baptized. In Romans 10, 9, we see it this way, that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Simple as that. God made it so simple that any one of us could truly come to him. And the last part I want to put on this is, how do we help someone to fail? It's been said so often at the church that we're the only army who shoots their own wounded. Now, a lot of the times this isn't true, but it's truly tragic when it is. When somebody has fallen into sin and the only thing that they receive from the church is criticism and judgment. Guys, that's truly tragic. It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking that sometimes the church is the last place a person can come to receive grace. So often the world will offer grace and forgiveness for people who have messed up, and yet they come to the church and they find nothing but judgment. That's not how God wants it to be. Our God is the God who leaves the 99 to seek after the one who has wandered away. And he expects the 99 when he comes back to receive welcome and embrace the one that he went after. In Galatians 6, 1 and 2, God gives us a template for restoring and receiving a fellow believer. It says, brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a spirit of gentleness, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. Carry one another's burdens in this way. You fulfill the law of Christ. And it says, you who are spiritual. Most of us who have spent a lot of time in church would consider ourselves spiritual. For After all, why would we go to church if we weren't spiritual? Why would we spend all this time here? But we'll see that the spiritual ones are the ones who are actually getting in the dirt with the one who has fallen and helping them up. And it says, restore such a one. Notice that in every case, every case, God's heart is restoration. God wants that broken man made whole again. As David said, restore the bones that you have crushed. 
God allows us to be crushed so that he can make us whole again. And it says from there, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Now, the person who thinks, well, I'm the perfect one to help. Because I would never in a million years be tempted by the wickedness that that person fell into. That is just disgusting to me. And so I would never. Guess what? That person is not spiritual. Because they don't even realize their own sinfulness and the extent of the human spirit that's within them. The one who is spiritual knows that they are saved by, sa- by grace and grace alone, and that they too have a flesh that needs to be guarded. But when you have somebody that has humility and love, there's great power to help the broken. Even Christ, it says, was tempted as we are. And Hebrews tells us that because of this, that he can sympathize with our weaknesses. So that spiritual man does not stand from some position of ultimate righteousness and condemn and judge the brother who has fallen. No, they get down in the dirt and they help them up. It says, bear one another's burdens. We're to help carry the weight, not to sit back and criticize. Amen? Amen. Amen. So we're going to continue with uh, worship and communion. And uh, we're going to do, as, as we did last time, there's two cups. And, and just as uh, the, the worship team is playing, just come up when, when the Lord prompts you. And there's two cups. You've got a bread in the bottom cup and the juice in the top cup. And, you know, just such an appropriate time for communion. And, and God is offering each one of us an opportunity to be made completely right before him. There's no great lengthy process that we need to do to, to, to turn back to him. We don't need to climb some mountain. I've, I've said in, in my own wandering, in my own life, it felt like I was walking away and that I was 100 miles away from God. And yet as soon as I turned around, I realized that God had been chasing me and he was right there the whole time. And so, communion, Jesus told us, do this in remembrance of me. Why did he say this? To keep our hearts pure. To keep our hearts focused on the sacrifice that he made for us. Not the great works that we can do for him. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you. And we receive this communion. Lord, we receive your body and your blood. God, we know that you had told us that if, if anyone does not eat of my body and drink of my blood, they have no part in me. And so here we are, Lord, collectively as a church body, God, crying out to you for mercy. Lord, each one of us has wandered from you from time to time. Lord, maybe we're doing good today. And Lord, for that, we rejoice. And maybe there's others who... God, we've blown it this week. God, in either case, Lord, we know that we are in need of your grace and your mercy. Lord, pour it out upon us. Father, we thank you for your work in our life. In Jesus' name, amen.